0: Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineco. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is
1: Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started.
0: Here we are with arsenic part three. Mm -hmm. So to catch up in case you haven't tuned in for parts one and two, highly encourage you check those out if you didn't. But arsenic trioxide Mm -hmm. is the version of arsenic that is poisonous to us. Right, Kale? One of them. Yeah. One of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it we started in part one with its use in history Mm -hmm. the egyptians used it to harden things like copper and in their embalming fluid and despite its impact on the crops it was also used as a pesticide Mm -hmm. by the romans Mm -hmm. and in 331 bc we had 170 wives who were convicted of poisoning their husbands (laughs) yep we don't know if there was evidence for that, but they were sure as hell convicted of it. Mm-hmm. And another woman wronged uh, was Lucrezia Borgia. Yep. Sadly, she her story was so sad. So sad. <laughs> it was like, sad.
1: Yeah, but tune into episode episode 2. Arsenic part one for that, yes. right? Yeah,
0: yeah, for more on that and the La Cantarella. Mm-hmm. And we also discussed Lady Tafana and her infamous oh, <laughs> and how she may have been responsible for 500 to 1,000 poisonings with that. Mm-hmm. And then we finally get to a test the Marsh test. Yep. And we're finally able to test for arsenic. And it's the one of the first uses of toxicology in court, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So kind of a big, big fucking deal here. Yeah. And then in arsenic part two, we covered the Bradford Sweets poisoning, which had over 225 people sick, and 20 were killed, sadly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some of whom were children, um, all because some guys wanted to save a little bit of money. Yeah. They wanted to save roughly $28. And they were going to put daft, which is like a plaster of Paris, mm-hmm. in these lozenges. But instead of 12 pounds of daft, we ended up with 12 pounds of arsenic getting put in. So a little bit of a snafu. <laughs> But, um, and then we also touch on uh, 6,000 people who were sickened by arsenic tainted beer, Mm -hmm. 70 of which died. Mm -hmm. So, for more on that, check out Arsenic's part
1: one and part two. Yeah. And today we are continuing with the arsenic story, which is going to absolutely pale those death counts. Like, all of those death counts combined, it's going to pale those ones because arsenic is actually the poison behind the largest mass poisoning in history.
0: And I can't believe I haven't heard about this.
1: I'm not surprised that we haven't heard about it because it's just so swept under the rug. Well,
0: take it away.
1: (laughs) It was first identified as the largest mass poisoning in history in 1978, or at least the fact that a mass poisoning was happening in 1978. But it's still happening today in 2022. And, and... people
0: still don't know that it's happening. Right.
1: Like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least we don't, you know, we right. don't know that it's happening. Um, but in 2000, a report published in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization by epidemiologist Dr. Alan Smith, uh, he wrote. The scale of the environmental disaster is greater than any seen before. It is beyond the accidents in Bhopal in 1984 and Chernobyl, Ukraine in 1986. It It's flabbergasting that I, I had no clue about this. Yeah. Like at all,
0: if it's this big of a deal.
1: Right. Because, I mean, we've all heard of Chernobyl. HBO series right. was made about it. Have you heard of Bhopal? I haven't. There was a really good swindled episode, but we will definitely hit Bhopal at some point. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, we haven't heard of this, and it's just, yeah, it's irritating. But to understand how we've come to have a 44-year-long chemical crisis worse than Chernobyl, we have to go even further back in time than 1978 to the establishment of the state of Bangladesh in the Bengal Delta, and that's where this disaster is taking place. All right. The Bengal Delta is the world's largest delta. It's created by the confluence of several rivers from Bhutan, Tibet, and Nepal from the north, all draining into the Bay of Bengal. The rivers carry with them alluvial soils, which are rich in minerals and nutrients, making this region one of the wettest and most fertile in the world. Like it could be amazing stuff happening in bangladesh we're, it's just not we're on par for good things to happen but right <laughs> now the delta lies partially in india and partially in bangladesh which used to actually be the indian state of bengal When India gained independence from Britain in 1857, the country became divided along lines of religion. Primarily, Hindu West Bengal was absorbed by India, and the primarily Muslim East Bengal became East Pakistan in 1955.
0: So just a nice, even division.
1: I mean, kind of, kind of, and like if you're actually familiar with the geography of Southeast Asia, which I'm, I'm not. So you could have said this to me, and I'd been like, okay, divided. It's actually very confusing because East Mm. Pakistan was separated from West Pakistan, which today is just Pakistan or the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. They're separated by a one thousand mile stretch of India. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So not not exactly not straight exactly about <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And even though it had this kind of large separation, I mean, I guess a thousand miles, like geographically speaking, isn't a whole lot, but like, you know, it's kind of a lot. It's but a lot. they were considered one country despite that because of the religious movements that helped gain independence from Britain and then separate from India. So both. East Pakistan and West Pakistan were actually predominantly Muslim. And so that's why they were like, OK, well, we're going to split and you're just going to both be Muslim Pakistan. But Muslims were not treated particularly well by Indian Hindus. Like the the whole religious divide, it just really like fucked with things. And then to like make it political by making them two different countries. Like it's a sh- recipe for disaster. Yeah. Things should have been fine. People should have gone along and they just didn't. The, the Muslims in Pakistan suffered from poorly developed educational systems, higher rates of illiteracy, and then between the two Pakistans, East and West, East was actually much poorer even though it contained 56% of Pakistan's total population. So a greater population is poor mm-hmm. than well off. Right. Right. And East Pakistan actually generated over half of Pakistan's wealth because the workers lived in Pakistan and had factories in Pakistan that were owned by West Pakistanis. Oh,
0: okay.
1: And so East Pakistan, those workers only saw about a third of the wealth produced by their labor supporting all of Pakistan.
0: That's tragic. Mm.
1: And then so this this is all happening. And this is like considering how long they were, you know, part of India and then split and then they were Pakistan's. They were actually East and West for kind of a short period of time. So in 1971, a nine month civil war broke out and East Pakistan seceded from West Pakistan. They gained their independence and then they were re- renamed Bangladesh. But all was not well for Bangladeshis despite their new- newfound independence. The Western world chose to back West Pakistan during their war because you know communism which we talked about with the agent orange episodes well and they're the wealthier one yeah and um pakistan was also perceived so the the you know west pakistan pakistan now was perceived to be in opposition to china and so anything that was against china we were like we'll back that because communism and again like you said you know industrialism um so they completely ignored the humanitarian crisis that was happening during the civil war with pakistan suppressing bengali nationalism and then india was in the middle like quite literally in the middle and they didn't want war because they knew it would strain them when refugees would be fleeing the war zone mm. and they end up mm-hmm, they ended up actually taking on 10 million refugees oh, that's not a small amount no Um, And so, you know, they feared that there would be further war and upheaval if West Pakistan — sorry, not Pakistan — if West Bengal and East Bengal, so that original region division, if they decided to just reunify to be Bengal. Um, And so India asked the United States to stop providing Pakistan with arms, and the US agreed. But a leaked memo to President Nixon revealed that there was a continued, quote, tilt in favor of Pakistan and India found out about this memo, they were pissed, and so they actually entered the war and backed Bangladesh. Oh, wow. Yeah, and while all this is happening, Cyclones also hit the region and killed 300,000 to 500,000 people in the Bay of Bengal in 1970. Jesus, they're not catching a break right now. Mm-mm. It left the survivors of the cyclones without clean water, food, or housing. The infrastructure was destroyed. Monsoon floods continued to f- damage cities and fields and made the whole country just awash with sewer water, which is kind of what we saw with Katrina. Like, mm-hmm. what you know, just there's no clean water if right. there was to begin with. Um, And soon Bangladesh was unable to provide food for its dense population and they fell into a famine.
0: This is too much, like any one of these things is too much to stand, let alone having all of these things happen. Yeah. And in like less than a decade, like less than five years even, like, Mm -hmm. come on, like this, give, give Bengal a break.
1: (laughs) So Bangladesh they finally received aid after photos of children with like distended stomachs and flies swarming in their eyes and you know too weak to brush them away they were published in the western world and so finally people were like oh no how terrible Not the children right that whole thing yeah so the famine was first addressed and then the broken infrastructure and part of the infrastructure rebuilding included providing clean drinking water to help eradicate waterborne spread of diseases like cholera. And so
0: what is cholera and what or how is it spread and what are the effects of it?
1: I I think we'll probably do a whole episode on cholera at some point. But just briefly, it's an infection of the small intestine by a specific bacteria. Um, Usually there's really, really watery diarrhea that lasts days. And you actually get cholera through this this watery diarrhea, like being Mm. in your water so it's the ingestion of cholera itself and there there was a lot of studies in like london during their cholera epidemics that showed like we really need to separate drinking water from being anywhere near sewage water and that just was not the case in bangladesh
0: well and it's i mean after cyclones and everything's ripped to shreds it's kind of
1: hard to you know yeah just have that automatically come on yeah yeah because of the problems with the infrastructure and the flooding it disproportionately affected poor Bangladeshis and there were 12 million people in the capital of Dhaka alone who lived in slums and were Holy very shit. poor yeah and this was actually a quarter of the population of Bangladesh that did not have access to clean drinking water and was very susceptible to things like cholera
0: <sighs> that's terrible that's that's a, hu- a metric fuck ton of people yeah
1: yeah, it's a lot of people, um, and you know that was that was the '70s. But even in 2002, conditions had not overwhelmingly improved for people. When Luke Harding, who was actually the journalist who wrote the reference book that we used for the Russians' poisons episode, mm. he visited and he wrote that quote: "All slum dwellers are forced to use the lake as a latrine. They use the same water to clean their cooking pots, to wash clothes, and to bathe."
0: and this is i mean when you have that many people it's mm-hmm. it's going to progress virally like mm-hmm. it's just going to get worse and worse mm-hmm. the water's going to get worse more people are going to get sick and then more right. people are going to shed in the water and make yeah. more people sick like it's it's a terrible cycle yeah like there's no wonder that it spread so quickly so badly
1: right right So, and I mean, it's easy to see, like, if I were to say nearly a quarter of a million people died every year because of waterborne disease, it's not hard to see why that was. No, absolutely not. But there was a solution because the fertile soils served as a form of water filtration and tube wells could easily be built to access clean water pouring in from the earth. And they actually had been built as early as 1937 and proven to be successful for this purpose. And so the United Nations generously steps in and specifically UNICEF which you know that organization that a lot of us trick or treated for quarters to benefit mm-hmm. UNICEF yep um the little box inst- i remember yeah <laughs> <laughs> they installed 900,000 hand pump tube wells throughout Bangladesh and encouraged more to be sunk by other authority figures and for a while this seemed to be the solution that Bangladesh needed was these hand pump tube wells to access that clean water Infant mortality dropped, child mortality dropped, and in 1997, UNICEF declared that 95% of Bangladeshis had access to clean water via tube wells, which surpassed their target of 80% of the population by the year 2000. And well, yet- This all
0: sounds good. Yeah, I was just <laughs> going to say, this all sounds good, but we're... Ten- it it's not like all right, that's it. The dose it makes the, the poison. <laughs> wrap it up. Yep. Like obviously, like I mean, they're hitting goals, but something something's amiss.
1: Yeah. I every time I was researching for this episode, I kept hearing this one professor in my head who always talked about the law of unintended consequences. Mm. That was this. So everyone in Bangladesh was not thrilled with these. Uh, wells, or rather not everyone was thrilled. There was superstition and fear in in response to tubal installation as early as the 1960s. And most of this was just based in local lore that claimed that any groundwater was tainted by the devil. And so Bangladeshis said, you know, devil's water is coming, and they were really hesitant about it. And unfortunately, they were correct. It just took the Hmm. devil a little while to reveal themselves. Hmm. Yeah. So this is when a dermatologist from the School of Tropical Medicine in Calcutta named Dr. Saha began seeing patients with spots appearing on their torsos, arms, and legs in West Bengal. So this is India. Uh, The spots were tiny and black, but the patients also had rough skin and warts appearing on their palms and the soles of their feet. And this wasn't a common condition, but it was not completely mysterious. And so it's not like Dr. Saha didn't know what he was seeing. He knew. He knew that hyperpigmentation like this was the first step of arsenicosis, which is caused by long-term arsenic exposure.
0: Mm. And
1: he was quickly able to say, this is arsenic, and then track down the source of the skin lesions to the tube wells, which were tested and confirmed to contain arsenic. All right, case closed. We figured it out, right? Right, no, no. (laughs) So with long-term arsenic exposure, hypopigmentation is also possible. So white spots can also be created rather than black. In either case, these spots are called melanosis. With extensive chronic arsenic exposure, Keratosis develops on the skin of the palms and the soles and that can raise and harden into nodules. And these can grow to be up to one centimeter across. So very hard, very big, and skin cancer can eventually grow on these sites. And skin cancer and keratosis from arsenic exposure, the reason Dr. Saha, as a dermatologist, was familiar with this was because it was published as early as 1888 by doctors who had patients who were taking Fowler's Solution for extended periods of time. And I think this should be familiar to anybody who listened to parts one and two of arsenic. I think mm-hmm. I probably mentioned Fowler's Solution. It yep. was an arsenic medicine and it was just not great. Um, but there were other derm- dermatological diseases caused by arsenic exposure, including blackfoot, which is a result of peripheral vascular disease from art exposure to arsenic, and that can end with gangrene in the extremities. So that's one of the routes that we can take with this chronic exposure. Some of the symptoms are, geographically dependent which is kind of weird so blackfoot is mostly seen in mongolia and taiwan and the first cases of arsenic related skin diseases in chile and argentina were recorded in 1917 and then in the 1970s they found high levels of bladder and lung cancers in these regions so so... those are later products of
0: the chronic arsenic exposure
1: exactly exactly and so we have seen it prior to bangladesh we know that okay so this It exists we know it exists we we know that it's as a result of long-term arsenic exposure um, and we also know that arsenic can cause damage to the kidneys the brain the heart circulation it can increase the chance of miscarriage and stillbirth and the main concern is really because of this long-term exposure that you can end up with bladder and lung cancer but the tragic thing is that it's not uncommon like the tragic thing is that we've seen it in all of these places right. and we should have been able to do something to stop it but it's you know all the places i mentioned it's, it's viewed as a third world problem
0: and so how how far reaching is this problem
1: at least in dr saha's cases so Dr. Saha's work was continued over the next four years, and he identified 1,214 cases of chronic arsenical dermatosis related to just tube well water in 61 different villages. So these were this all- is huge. Yeah. And they were all being serviced by different tube wells. Like it was a pretty widespread study that he was able to conduct. He published his findings. Every year beginning in 1984, but it was not until 1988 that he received any kind of widespread recognition for it because it was finally published in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization. And well, this... what's with the fucking weight, guys? Like... I know. I mean, but it, it's good that it was published here. It sucks that it took so long, but like this, this journal is like the compass for like considering what to do f- to help developing nations with water supply, sanitation, whatever. But the World Health Organization is behind the bulletin and who's behind the World Health Organization? The United Nations, who installed the tube wells. The, the levels of irony
0: here are absolutely staggering and tragic. Um, I mean, I, and there's almost this wonder of like, did they want to wait to see if the problem would just go away? And that's why they didn't want to give it any attention. Like, I hate to think that. But with all of the other things that we've covered, it makes me want like, maybe maybe it'll just
1: go away. I don't I I don't know if they really thought about it as the problem. I think they were like, we have a solution, mm. and everybody was like, no. The tube wells. The solution. <laughs> no, the solution is the, the problem. The problem. <laughs>
0: like, yeah. <laughs> so you're cutting off your nose despite your face here.
1: Like, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So Saha's paper in the bulletin, it centered mostly around West Bengal rather than East Bengal. So it was really talking about India rather than Bangladesh. But the ramifications were the same for all regions. Like Mm -hmm. it was kind of like, hey, red flag for anywhere that's being serviced by these tube wells. So what Saha and his colleagues found was that there was at least one tube well being used by the villagers of Ramnagar that had 2,000 parts per billion of arsenic in it. That can't be good. No, no. 46 people in this village were found to have hyperpigmentation and liver damage. 13 people admitted to the hospital for arsenicosis-related issues in this village were found to have arsenic concentrations in their nail and hair samples that were 100 times greater than those of people drinking from tube wells containing less than 10 parts per billion of arsenic. Holy shit. Yeah. So, like... (sighs) It's, it's not just that it's, like, widespread and chronic. Like, there it's, are some people who have acute exposure as well. Right.
0: Like, with, with levels that high.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: it's bound to
1: affect everybody. Mm-hmm. Never- yeah. Okay. And you did mention arsenic trioxide at the top of the episode, but there are a couple different kinds of arsenic so typically the form of arsenic that has been used to poison people maliciously or has been used medicinally is that arsenic trioxide which is a white solid the forms of arsenic that are found in the groundwater are soluble inorganic forms called arsenate or arsenite both are white solids usually bound to sodium or potassium to form an arsenic salt
0: okay so a little bit different yeah a little
1: bit different yeah so for inorganic arsenic 10 parts per billion of arsenic is considered safe. And this is... <laughs> uh, uh, 10? 10 parts at... per... Yeah.
0: Yeah, 10 parts per billion when we had levels of 2,000? 2,000. Yes, yes. Nice.
1: And if you want to picture 10, that's about a third of a teaspoon of arsenic in an Olympic swimming pool, and that's the threshold of safety. But a greater value of 50 parts per billion is actually considered safe by the Bangladesh government.
0: Oh, okay. Um, why? <laughs> the numbers are all there, but it's not adding up.
1: <laughs> so 50 parts per billion was established specifically for acute doses by Manchester in 1900 to prevent arsenic contamination of sugar for brewing beer. So this number, it was actually... Even this was established somewhat arbitrarily. So they found the sugar in question contained 15,000 parts per billion. It poisoned 6,000 people and killed 70. So the investigation after this Manchester incident determined that a safe acute dose in this instance would have been 1,000 parts per billion at most, acutely. And so they divided that by 20 to give a safe margin of error and came to 50. And that's how we got a 50 part per billion threshold that we used throughout the 20th century. Okay. So not really anything grounded in toxicology as we know it today, but that's where we were. Just throwing the number out there. (laughs) Just throwing the number out there. And so in 1988, Bangladesh is saying 50 parts per billion is safe. Saha is finding 2,000 parts per billion in some of these tube wells. and. At this time when these publications are being made and the alarm is being sounded, UNICEF was still actively installing tube wells in the region and encouraging others to do the same. Mm -hmm. This is before Mm -hmm. 1995 when they're like, hey, look at us, look how good we did. (sighs) Yeah, This is like spreading a disease Mm -hmm. knowingly. Yeah. I mean, essentially. And the Bulletin did nothing to slow down the installation of further tube (sighs) wells. In fact, tube wells were already being viewed as a status symbol by the people of the Bengal region and Bangladesh at this time. And sometimes they were included in a bride's dowry. Well off households had two or more tube wells just for themselves privately. Two or more ways to get arsenic poisoning. Fantastic.
0: (laughs) So this is, I mean, you would think that we know it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Are we testing these tube wells when they're being created and saying like, oh, you know what? This one is too much. Let's shut it down. No, they're just throwing them up like McDonald's and
1: Starbucks, just like (laughs) everybody gets one. So once they were just unavoidably aware of the situation after that bulletin where it was like, Mm -hmm. hey. The World Health Organization is aware of it. United Nations is aware of it. They did start testing the water for arsenic before tubal was installed at that point, though. Right. Okay. but the threshold was still 50 parts per billion, which is not good and not safe. Right. 49.9 parts per billion. They'd say it's okay, And it's like that's nearly five times more than what's considered safe elsewhere in the world.
0: Right. And it's almost like, is this, are we considering this higher level safe
1: mm-hmm. so that
0: we can have a quote unquote safe tube well? Right, right. Instead that just saying like the labor and everything that went into it was for nothing?
1: Right. And between 1998, when there was more, um, you know, more studying, will happen in the next 10 years that I'm going to describe. But between that and the time that the book that I was using is my main source book, which was Venomous Earth by Andrew A. Meharg, between 1998 and 2005, 4 million tube balls were sunk. And because of this testing, they statistically are likely to have 1 million that are contaminated with that, you know, above 10 parts per billion of arsenic. These are not good numbers. No. No, it's not good numbers. No. Uh,
0: Uh... 25% 25% chance of getting, yeah,
1: deathly ill, not not good numbers. no. So in 1993, an analytical chemist from Calcutta noticed that many people in his home village were exhibiting the same hyperpigmentation, that arsenicosis, mm-hmm. and he became a major advocate for further study in West Bengal and Bangladesh. His name was Deepankar Chakraborty, and he helped to win funding for research that found an estimated 200,000 of the 3 million people in the region were suffering from some sort of chronic arsenical dermatosis.
0: That. Is too many people once again, it's too many and people. that's and that's too many, and that's how many were showing signs mm-hmm. at that point in time. Not how many were exposed. Right,
1: right. Nineteen ninety three was also the first year that problems with arsenic were actually recorded in Bangladesh proper. So not just saying like we could generalize it to Bangladesh, but we actually found it in Bangladesh because a contaminated tube well was found in a village in nineteen ninety two, studied and then reported the following year. Unfortunately, this wasn't followed up on. Bangladesh was still unstable and the government didn't do anything to really investigate or mitigate this village or anything in the surrounding region. Since cases were being taken more seriously in Calcutta, Chakraborty was able to see almost immediately that the situation in Bangladesh was worse. Like Not to compare mm. tragedies, but he could right. tell that it was going to be more widespread right. because he was seeing more and more cases of arsenicosis in his clinics. So his team investigated and verified the contamination of tube wells in Bangladesh in 1995, and that same year he hosted the arsenic conference in Calcutta to fully inform governments and international agencies of the widespread crisis that well they had known about for years. But he was like, "Hey, hey, Chrissy, wake up! I don't like this. <laughs> Chrissy, wake up!" Like. <laughs> following this arsenic conference in calcutta in 1996 the world Horth organization declared the situation in bangladesh to be a major public health issue
0: oh well it's about god dang time
1: considering it was eight years of preventable exposure since the original right. publication in their bulletin
0: right not not even how long they had known about it or yeah people had known about it like jesus took them took them long enough
1: Right. Took him long enough. But meanwhile, Chakraborty, he's just continuing on and he's advocating. He's working with the Dhaka Community Hospital. And in 1997, results were published from his work at this hospital. And they were, of course, unsurprisingly terrible. Um, 14 years after it was discovered in West Bengal, things were still you know, getting progressively worse. So they looked at two hundred and ninety four tube wells in a single village and found that twenty nine percent of them had over fifty parts per billion of arsenic. So over even like what the the estimated twenty five percent. Yeah. Another village that was studied between nineteen ninety six and nineteen ninety seven was one of the worst affected areas where ninety percent of the tube wells had over fifty parts per billion of arsenic. What in the actual fuck? I know. And the most extensive study was conducted between 1998 and 1999 and looked at 3,534 tube wells. Over 25% of them had at least 50 parts per billion of arsenic. At least? At least. Yeah. Oh, this is n- this is not fucking good, guys. No, no. They also found that out of 64 districts in Bangladesh, 59 of them had arsenic contaminated groundwater in at least one of the tube wells. So only five districts were completely safe with their tube wells. And the northern districts of Bangladesh were mostly arsenic free. So that's where that five was kind of bundled. The south was mostly the place that was contaminated. That's what they were able to kind of find and map out. They
0: really were right about this being the devil's water. Yeah. Yeah. Like they they weren't wrong. Yeah. And it gets worse. Well, of course it does. How I the know. fuck does it get worse than 90% of the tube wells having more than 50 parts per billion of arsenic?
1: Because it's not just drinking water and it's not just groundwater. Agricultural advancement has led to the tube well water being pumped into irrigation systems to Mm. water rice paddy fields during hot, dry seasons.
0: The rice that we learned about before, nice soaking up conduit for the arsenic. Fantastic.
1: Yes. Yes. And Bangladesh rice paddies provide citizens with around 70% of their calories. Nice. Rice grown in Bangladesh has been found to have as much as (gasps) 1,830 parts per billion of arsenic when the safe cutoff for rice established by the EU and World Health Organization is 200. And the global median was found by a single group in 2019 to be 66. So
0: even the 200 was being very generous, Mm. but we're nine times that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. They can't escape it anywhere they're drinking it bathing in it eating it eating yeah. it it's yeah. it's just all the
1: things okay okay so so things yeah they can get worse okay and of course chakraborty and others they are like hey look at this it's <laughs> like look at me there's a problem <laughs> the alarms have not stopped sounding <laughs> like oh it's still happening so in 1998 a unicef representative addresses this and states we are wedded to safe water not tube wells but at this time tube wells remain a good affordable idea and our program will go on and daca Um. unicef also said it was quote unproductive to dwell on the past and i think that it goes without saying but it's just that's fucking bullshit
0: yeah it's it's unproductive to look at the objective evidence that we have that there is a tragedy Mm-hmm.
1: Like currently happening, currently not happening. The
0: past. This isn't. Yeah, we're not dwelling on the past. This is something that is happening day to day. It's gonna be there tomorrow. This isn't dwelling on the past. This yeah. is dwelling on the present, and the past, and the future. You sick fucks. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that same year, 1998, the World Bank gave Bangladesh a 34 million dollar loan to deal with the tube well contamination but it was slow to be used for some reason in the first 2 years only 2 million had been used and this was mostly on committees and consultants by 2005 the loan had been completely used and another 55 million dollar loan was lined up by the world bank but no money or plans were planned to deal with the arsenic contamination of soil so it's kind so of we're just, just like throwing on money
0: that. yeah we're just throwing money at it but mm-hmm. not actually doing anything with it
1: As of 2017, Bangladesh's government planned to put 200 million dollars to cleaning up water supplies in a project that should have concluded this year in 2022. But I couldn't find any information on that project specifically. If you go on to their website, there are a number of infrastructure projects that the World Bank is still funding and the Department of Rural Health and Engineering in Bangladesh is currently engaged in. So I couldn't quite figure out what had been done or what was wrapping up. But maybe since it was supposed to end this year, in the next year or two, we might have information on how successful any of those plans were.
0: Okay. Yeah. Why the fuck is this all taking so long? <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> like, It's a great question. <laughs> they're they're dragging their feet to the tune of like twenty plus years, thirty years, mm-hmm. like that. We've known this is a problem.
1: Yeah. Like, do they? Do we have any reasoning why? I mean, okay, so like part of the reason that they were slow to fix it is because organizations like the WHO and WaterAid were still pretty set on the ideas that two wells, even with high possibility of arsenic contamination, are safer than no tube wells at all. Which like, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's just them saying like, we're sticking to our guns or if it's like kind of a savior complex speaking or what. But essentially, they're trying to say that, like, okay, look, Bangladesh can either choose between bacteria-laden water and arsenic. And I suppose <laughs> technically, like, those are technically the two solutions if you're not like, well, what about water treatment plants? What about, like, right. better infrastructure than just, like, tube wells, right? Right. Like, there's a better... there.
0: There is another option. There are better options. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we just looking at these
1: two? Right. And, like... I don't know. I get that like if you're washing your pans and washing your clothes in dirty water, like it's the the problem is just everything. It's everything you touch. It's like, you know how they say that like you shouldn't wash chicken because trying to get rid of any bacteria on chicken just splashes it onto your counters and then you touch your counter and you're more likely to get salmonella that way. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's kind of what the issue is with this cholera and other waterborne diseases is is that like you could boil your drinking water and then still end up like accidentally getting dirty water into that Mm -hmm. but it's like you can at least boil cholera and other shit out of the water but you can't boil Boil arsenic arsenic. yeah and like that shit's there forever right and I know that like I don't know it just feels like the solutions that they're kind of suggesting is putting the onus on the like impoverished people and the people who are right. like at risk when it's like, no, the government needs to do more. Like, yeah, the the know. people,
0: the, the people living in the slums of Bangladesh uh, should not be burdened. Right. With the solution to water treatment. And I'm like sorry.
1: they're like, like, oh, well, we need to educate people. And it's like. Sure, you might need to educate a little bit, but I think in general, people know that it's dangerous and they just don't have other options because you're not doing anything. Yeah,
0: we, you need water to live. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if those are the two choices that you're presented with, like, well, you,
1: you're, you you know, between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, and it's like, well, are you gonna educate people about cholera? Or are you gonna educate them about arsenic? Because like, when they educate people- why not people, both? Right, <laughs> Well, and when they educate people that, like, okay, here here, you guys, okay, so we've painted the good wells green and the bad wells red. And when they tell people that, people are like, oh, and 60% of them make it the switch, but not everybody makes the switch. Is everybody capable of making the switch? Was everybody informed? Is the paint actually still there a couple years later? And right. do they remember which, or have they moved into the region and know which one
0: is, is the safe? good tube well and which one's not? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Fucking, yeah, I, I mean, just...
0: but that seems like the absolute bare fucking minimum. Absolutely, like that is they they could be doing so much more. And, but but let's throw another hundred million dollars at the problem, right? Right, and just get some consultants.
1: <laughs> well, the other thing that I fucking hate is when they start talking about education, which I feel is just like people high up, like, hmm, problems of the poor. What should we do about that? Like. That's what these conversations sound like to me. So in 2001, the World Health Organization, I feel like, stepped out of one of these conversation and publicly said that, quote, the poor availability of reliable information hinders action at all levels and may lead to panic, exacerbated if misleading reports are made. Effective information channels have yet to be established to those affected and concerned. And like, I just I'm so fucking tired of people being like talking about poisons is fear-mongering and it creates panic and it's like well,
0: what about being poisoned yeah i was just gonna say but but being dead <laughs> <laughs> like like being sick and dead um yeah, yeah not worth it like it's not fear-mongering to learn how to live a safe and healthy life
1: right it's not what you don't know won't hurt you like being exposed to arsenic we know that will hurt you we know the danger of arsenic right we know that there's no safe exposure amount we have that 10 part per billion threshold for chronic exposure but like ideally it's zero you know
0: right right this is something we don't want there's a reason it's not used in pesticides anymore there's a reason why we don't have it in cosmetics anymore mm-hmm. there's
1: a there there are reasons yeah there are scientific reasons ones that for <laughs> areas that like not to sound like crass or mean but areas that people seem to care about like we right. have eliminated those whereas by 2005 estimates in that book that I was using 5 million people in West Bengal and they don't have you know numbers on exactly how many people in Bangladesh but 35 to 77 million of them were being exposed to arsenic contaminated water so, yeah, you really
0: weren't kidding when you no. said that this is the largest mass poisoning. It's enormous.
1: And according yeah. to the World Health Organization Jesus. itself, 43,000 people in Bangladesh <gasps> die every year from chronic arsenic exposure alone. Holy shit. Yeah. And at least two generations now, because of how long this has lasted, have grown up with arsenic exposure. So now we're getting compounding problems like people who children who are arsenic orphans because of this disaster, they lose both parents. The World Health Organization estimates that if 90 million children are born between 2000 and 2030, when hopefully enough arsenic contam—you know contaminated tube wells are eliminated, blah, 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 like in an idealistic world where we do something, one to five million of these children will still die from chronic arsenic exposure, like in an ideal situation.
0: And I thought that it was bad when twenty people died in the Bradford Sweets poisoning. <laughs> I mean it was. It was. It, I mean, yeah, twenty people's bad, but now we're talking about millions. Yeah. Like yeah. that's insane. And like how how like how do more people not know about this? Like I'll say it again. Like, I don't
1: I don't know. I don't know. I Huh. It's Like, again, I don't mean to actually say, like, I don't care about Bangladesh, but it seems like that's what everybody else is saying. Organizations just don't care about Bangladesh. And you know, it it pisses me off further that I talked about that, you know, 50 part per billion, 10 part per billion. Mm -hmm. The United States EPA decided to lower our threshold to 10 part per billion in 2001. We didn't have to be compliant until 2006, but the rest of the world understood the danger of 50 parts per billion. And this you know, was based on a World Health Organization decision. But there's still the ones that are like, more tube wells. More tube wells. And this decision was made by the World Health Organization in 1993, which was the first year that a contaminated tube well was found in Bangladesh. And so we, we just plowed ahead. Just full
0: steam, no stop. Yeah. Tube wells for everybody. (laughs) So where, I guess, the next question I have is where does the arsenic come from? Like how come it's only in the tube well water and not in the bacteria-laden water?
1: Yeah. No, I was really confused about that too. I was like, why do we have these two different kinds of water? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, what I thought when I was reading about it, like what I kind of thought they were going to say was that it was a man-made contamination of some kind, because even though arsenic is present in the earth soil, it's not usually a problem unless we make it one because of like herbicides or mining. And so that's kind of what I thought it was going to be, was that like mining practices north Mm -hmm. of Bangladesh were like coming down in those rivers. But Bangladesh actually had two different sources of water to pull from. The water which pours in from all sides by the rivers is the Mm bacteria-laden water, right? So like the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, and the Menga rivers. And all of that water is already pretty dirty before it gets to Bangladesh and gets stuck in the delta because of monsoon floodwaters and all of that. So that's the first one that has cholera and then it gets stuck and just continues to have- Stagnate, yeah. Right. And like the Ganges is notoriously dirty. That's just, like, what happens when a river flows through, like, a high-population area. Like, I don't mean Mm. to say, like, ah, it's dirty because it's flowing through, like, Southeast Asia. Like, don't think that I mean that. Like, the Seine River is also dirty. You aren't allowed to swim in it. And we literally have lit the Cuyahoga River that runs through Cleveland on fire 13 times. (laughs) So everybody's kind of terrible in a high-population area. right. But the other water source is much older in its origin. And this is that groundwater that isn't contaminated because of these rivers. During the last ice age, about 17,000 years ago, the sea level dropped and the rivers that we now call the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, they cut deep channels into the land that had previously been seafloor. The sea level eventually rose again about 3000 years later and the eroded land became filled with sediment carried by the rivers. There were now deep deposits of trapped water, which, you know, created natural aquifers. And that those happen in lots of places that have had the same sort of like rise and fall of like sea level. Okay. And this is where that clean, clean, the arsenic contaminated water is being pumped from. Gotcha. But scientists were still like, I don't understand why this is arsenic contaminated. There's lots of aquifers around the world. And this is really, like, the first time that we've seen it, especially at these levels. So, like, what's like, the deal with ed- these? And how widespread it is.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. to this localized
1: area. Right, right. Because there's there's places on Earth that have, like, high concentrations of arsenic in the groundwater that are, like, near volcanoes. Or they're, like, near some place that's really dry. And so, like, there's a lot of chemical shit that happens and you end up with arsenic that way. But it's not like that in Bengal, at least not exactly. And so it was definitely a learning process to be like, oh, that's how we get arsenic in these other areas, because mm. it's similar but different. Without getting too technical, which I'm very tempted to do, <laughs> but without getting <laughs> too technical, um, the presence of arsenic is all based on page-dependent reactions. And so that's why you see it in volcanic regions, in dry regions. And that's also why you see it In these aquifers is because of redox reactions that are the gain or loss of a proton the arsenic compounds of concern are arsenate and arsenite which are usually bound as salts and can become unbound this is what happens in the regions with the volcanoes the dry regions but it can also happen in water you can have these unbound Mm. arsenate arsenite compounds The prevailing theory proposed by none other than Chakraborty at all, our main guy for being like, hey, there's arsenic, (laughs) (laughs) he thought that it was created by the oxidation of pyrite. But by the late 90s, this was kind of like called into question. People were like, that doesn't really make sense because these waters are really oxygen poor and not oxygen rich. And that would be what results in oxidation. So Mm -hmm. they were like, we don't think it's the oxidation part. We think it's the reduction part. Let's look at like how things can be reduced in the water, that re part of redox. And basically it's just because that there's like a lot of minerals that can contain arsenic that are present in sediment unlike in other aquifers and they can react and free the arsenic compounds. So it's just very regionally specific and like pH and like just all of these correct things happening to be terrible. And it was just kind of bound to happen. Yeah, yeah, kind kind of. of. Now, interestingly, the geologic age of the different layers of the aquifers offer different concentrations of arsenic. Hmm. So the the Pleistocene, 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 Pleistocene. (laughs) Yes. Don't come at me, geologists. These are the oldest and the deepest layers, and they have sub 10 part per billion concentrations of arsenic. So these are the ones that it's like, yeah, let's go for that. We like that the water of the upper holocenic layers are also safe but the lower holocenic layers are rich in arsenic and these were the layers that were mostly tapped by the initial sinking Mm. of tube well so you can go like kind of shallow or pretty deep and we went like right in the middle and it's like ah of course we did damn (laughs) i
0: do i mean could it if they went less deep Like, could there be more safe tube wells if that was still gonna be
1: the preferred option? Not as much, no. Less deep isn't, isn't what they're going for. What they're going for is more deep. And so the tube wells in DACA actually pull from the Pleistocene layers, but it's not necessarily enough to determine safety. And over pumping of the deep layer by 22 million people in Dhaka, um, it's actually threatening the safety of these wells because the shallower water can Mm. be like, you know, pulled in. And um, the shallower water is being used by rural Bangladeshis. And it's just like, it's just awful. Like, especially in high population areas, it's like, man, these tube wells really aren't the solution. They really just aren't. But they really double downed on it like it was. (laughs) Yeah, they did. They're like, we hit more than our goal. Look at us go. Tube yeah. wells everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So by crude estimates, there are still 10 million active shallow tube wells. So those rural shallow tube wells, mm-hmm. not, the, not the top, top shallow, but that mid-range of danger. Um, they are being used elsewhere outside of DACA, and they're still poisoning people outside of Dhaka. Mm. Another analysis by the Human Rights Watch of two wells installed between 2006 and 2012 found that 10% of these new wells were installed in areas that were already well covered by safe water, and some areas with limited access to safe water had 20 wells or fewer installed, while other areas with safe water, full safe water coverage, had as many as 201 new wells added." So we're not spreading the love here, we're like concentrating it and sucking out all of the potentially safe water.
0: Yeah, and, like, if there's already safe water, then why are we just going ham right? with yeah. all these tube wells? Like, and,
1: I mean, like I really said before... They got it
0: on for these, like...
1: Right, right, and like I said before, like, some people have multiple tube wells of their own, so there's this right. issue with private tube wells that can get that deep, safe water, and other people have public tube wells that it's there's only one in their region, and it's not even good. Yeah. So what can we do about this uh yeah yeah i want i want so badly to be like things can be done because they can like really they can but what can you and i do Mm. yeah Mm. there are innovative solutions being implemented on local levels but to be honest they just kind of make me sad so, when the government refuses to act on behalf of its poor, the global community is left to try and do what they can with the little funding they can because they're not UNICEF and the World Bank. And before before I was a grad student, I thought this was the kind of work that changed the world. I had the naivete to be like, we're, we're doing all the good work that right. the, you know, <laughs> robber barons of our time aren't willing to do. And now I just... Again, I don't mean to be a a cynic, but it's just such a Sisyphean battle with this kind of work. So what has been done is that filters have been given to families. Specifically, I saw this in Nepal, but it's a local change that I'm sure has been implemented elsewhere as well. These filters, they get hot when they're stored with water. So you put your water in it, it filters, it stores, it gets hot, and then... There's just a leaching of something. It's not dangerous, but there's a leaching okay. of something, and so the the water gets cloudy. And people are like, I don't want to drink this. Like this looks like it's contaminated. What the fuck is wrong with your filter? Right. And so they stop using it. They end up using it for things like rice storage. You know, people will come in and be like, How's your filter? And it's filled with rice. It's just rice. Yeah. Another thing that they've done is that phone apps have been help, have been developed to help the. DPHE, so that Department of Rural Engineering. Um, the the employees are supposed to collect data on wells and then inform users as to their safety okay. status, right? That could be useful. But I don't know the extent to which it's actually used by the department or by the people of Bangladesh. Like how mm. often is it updated? You know, I feel like it's probably about as effective as the apps you use to save gas or to report COVID, if you had COVID or not. Right. You know, so and like, they have this they have this app now, but it wasn't the first time that a database had been compiled for the wells. There was already a nationwide public water point mapping database that proved my point, essentially, by having a tube well located in the database that was like, this is good. And it was painted red. So it wasn't even like an up. It wasn't a database. safe place. Yeah. Yeah
0: physical filters might as well not even have data at that point
1: (laughs) right because what does it mean
0: yeah if you if it's not accurate then you might as well not have it
1: now physical filters can also be added to central locations and i think this is one of the better options that they have so you can have a school that has its own physical water filter and again this has happened in a couple places like nepal they have been implemented these filters are pretty cool They have iron nails in them, which are exposed to air and water to create ferric hydroxide particles. And that Hmm. can catch the arsenic as it flows through the system by creating an arsenic compound in the same way that arsenic is naturally bound to some particles in the aquifers where the arsenic is lower and the water is safe. The arsenic compounds that are formed are then pushed down into a sand layer in the filter. And these filters have been found to eliminate about 85 to 95 of the arsenic that's present. Well, this sounds fabulous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) For the situation, yeah, it's a pretty good local solution. Filters have also been developed by researchers at the George Mason University that have eliminated new cases of arsenicosis and even badly contaminated regions, so... This is Uh, promising. Another cool filter. These filters are essentially just two buckets stacked on top of each other. Each bucket is filled with local river sand and a composite iron mix, so a lot like the nails in that first filter. And then the second bucket has wood, charcoal, fine sand, and wet brick chips. It's called the Sono Filter, and it can eliminate as much as 98% of arsenic. We love to hear it. It's fairly inexpensive. It costs only 35 U.S. dollars, but my issue with these filters is that they're only reactionary measures taken in the presence of still contaminated water and it's not a solution to the country on a whole right it's localized small mm-hmm. situations yeah the research that really makes me feel the most on though <laughs> was conducted for six months in 2016. Researchers from the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Calgary were monitoring 400 Bangladeshis who were provided with lentils grown in Saskatchewan to try and counteract the effects of arsenic exposure. Now apparently for whatever reason, Saskatchewan lentils have particularly high levels of selenium, which is an antagonist of arsenic and can bind two arsenic in the blood to be eliminated without causing any damage to the body. Well, that's pretty rad. Right. Now, I couldn't get a complete copy of the published article on this study, which stated the arsenic levels in the urine of participants was higher and the signs of arsenic were lower. So it does seem like the arsenic is being eliminated without binding Mm -hmm. anywhere in the body. But a six month period doesn't make me feel very confident. And again, this is in response to arsenic still being in the water. Right. It's not a systemic change. And how many lentils can Saskatchewan grow and then send to Bangladesh?
0: Right. They're not going to be able to make up for everybody who's affected by this problem, the hundreds of millions of people, Right, like realistically. And we're still chasing a problem because if they're eating the lentils, it's already assuming that they have... Right. arsenic poisoning right like we're not nipping it in the butt we're like
1: burning the weeds instead of pulling them out by the root yeah exactly yeah so i mean i don't want to discredit anybody who is doing the work and trying to help but there needs to be more action on the government level like that's, absolutely that's all there is to this The Human Rights Watch released a 111-page report in 2016 that described the situation at that time in Bangladesh and the responsibilities of the government, doctors, and monetary donors. They primarily called out the nepotism in the government as a hurdle for safe water access Mm. and stated that, Long before such water points are installed, politicians undermine the allocation of new government water points by diverting these life-saving public good to their political supporters and allies. In at least one government project, official policy recognized the influence of parliamentarians inciting 50% of all new water points. Mm. The Human Rights Watch found that any attempt at mitigating arsenic exposure has waned since 2006. And mm-hmm. mostly, the government and local officials have stopped caring about the primarily poor Bangladeshis affected. The well, human yeah, because watch... they
0: probably have safe water. It, yeah, exactly. It, like, yeah, yeah, they have safe water. So, so what's it matter? Got what's mine. Matter? Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> Ugh. The Human Rights Watch was, quote, repeatedly told that government doctors or healthcare staff do not currently conduct arsenic screening in villages. If patients go to village health clinics with symptoms of arsenic exposure, they are told nothing can be done for them. If they go to health complexes in nearby towns, they are often told there are no longer even the multivitamins and ointment that they used to receive as treatment. And this may be part of the reason that some afflicted Bangladeshis see hospitals as a last resort or a total non-option.
0: Well, why would you waste your time in going? Yeah. If you're not going to get help, you're basically just squeaking and going, oh, okay, well, I'm glad I came out here today for nothing. So,
1: like, why even bother?
0: Right. I mean, I don't blame them.
1: Now, the two wells can be rehabilitated or replaced by the government and aid organizations, which was actually done by UNICEF after testing in 2012 and 2013, found that 1,733 of their wells were contaminated by arsenic above the national standard, 50 parts per billion. That was still their cutoff. Right, But- This probably means that the tube wells were made deeper, and this doesn't seem to be a permanent solution based on the death issues seen in regions around Dhaka. The government did begin the Bangladesh Arsenic Mitigation Water Supply Project in 2003, and they screened nearly 5 million tube wells in over 57,000 villages and found that 29% were above 50 parts per billion, but no comprehensive study has been done on the tube wells since 2003. However, a departmental report by the Department of Public Health Engineering showed that 61 out of 64 districts in Bangladesh still had tube wells, which tested positive for arsenic above the threshold. And so now there's two more regions that are not safe compared to that earlier study that was done. Things are getting worse, not better. It seemed like the most that was going to come from the DPHE was going to be more painting of the wells, which has proven effective somewhat because people do stop going to wells that are red. But that's when they're available, when they have the option, and when the paint lasts. As far as irrigating the rice paddy fields, because I mentioned it and then stopped talking Mm -hmm. about it because everybody else stopped talking about it. The best solution recommended by the author of the book that I was reading, Venomous Earth, Andrew Naharg. Um, he actually was researching the arsenic contamination of rice fields in Bangladesh in the 90s. And so he said that the best solution is to obtain clean water by collecting rain or by having India share more of their water. This solution is, of course, more difficult because of political tension. Yeah, that seems like a, an un, unlikely go-to. Mm-hmm. And... Even if the water source were to change and we were to stop putting arsenic in the paddy fields, there's still already arsenic present there that's still going to be there.
0: Right. That was already there from when they were watering before. Mm-hmm. So, like I said- because yeah, as, much... as we learned with Agent Orange, that's it's not coming out. It's not. Once no. it's there,
1: it's there. So, I mean, as much as I don't want to just, like, have this episode and then be like, shit sucks, like- I just I don't think anything's going to change unless the world takes a greater interest, unless more people know about it and press like they did in the 1970s. And I think that really more more needs to be done on the government level. Like they are ignoring people because there's not enough pressure on them. In 2016, after the Human Rights Watch, like, put out a report, a local government minister said that, quote, no one in Bangladesh suffers from arsenic poisoning. Oh, my God. So, I really think that more pressure needs to be put on aid agencies, more pressure needs to be put on the government. Like, nothing's going to happen until the people at the top decide that it's worth their time. Right. And they've obviously demonstrated that it's not
0: at the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully you've done your part, by I mean, you've educated me on it. I had no idea. And hopefully right. we can educate our listeners. Mm-hmm. Are there um, any resources that our listeners
1: can support? So I am going to put a um, link to water.org where they can donate. And it seems like that's a pretty good place to donate that will actually do something effective and won't take some money um but if anybody's like hey actually water.org is pretty sketch like you know message me message us email us and i will definitely look for something else but that's the most i feel like we can really do we can also pressure governments and aid agencies to um to really focus on the major points that were mentioned by the human rights watch in their Mm. report and those points are that there needs to be an end to any official or de facto policy or practice where official political representatives influence the location of government water points. So end to nepotism. There needs to be a time bound commitment to reduce the current standard for arsenic to the world health organization of 10 parts per billion. Mm -hmm. We need to reduce the allocation of shallow tube wells in favor of increasing allocations of arsenic safe alternatives in specifically arsenic prone areas. We need to improve the availability of information. We need to provide national supplements and basic symptomatic treatment for people at village level community health care centers. And we need to support the government to replace or rehabilitate the water points already identified as contaminated by arsenic above 10 parts per billion, not just more 50. 50, No more 50, That's that's not what we're doing here. Right. So if anybody's listening and anybody knows anybody that has their fingers on the trigger anywhere that can do something, please help us do something for Bangladesh, because otherwise we're still just throwing money at it and we're just in, like having these localized solutions that aren't systemic st- solutions, you know, and that's really what they need is a systemic solution for access to clean water. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time to research this one so thoroughly and educate us. I. I honestly did not think that Arsenic Part 3 would be something, like,
1: as devastating as this. Yeah. yeah, And I don't know why I did this to us, but the next couple of episodes are gonna be kind of devastating. Like, I'm, I've been putting them off because I know that they're gonna be, like, like this. It's gonna take me a while to, like, go through the story and really thoroughly research it. But it's also just gonna be, like, heavy material, so, like, buckle up, everyone. I'm ready.
0: (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is a Look Far by our dear wizard friend, Fog Weaver. More of their music can be found on Bandcamp.com.
0: Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the
1: dose makes the poison.